everybody. It is time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we have Deep Calls to Deep. In the book of Psalms, we read that deep calls to deep, meaning that there are deep things that cause us to think deep. In our world, we are a mile wide and an inch deep, and we need to think differently. We need to think more deeply. We need to think harder about the things of God, and we need to hear from people that cause us to think deeply. And that's what we have for you today. This is a conversation that I had with Jackson Wu a few months back. Now, Jackson is a fascinating guy. We'll get into just a little bit of his bio in a moment, but we're going to be talking about culture, contextualization, which is a huge word I know. Some of you are very familiar with that term. Others of you are wondering, what did he just say? Well, we're going to define it, and then we're going to describe it, and we're going to talk about how it influences our view of the Bible and our view of the world. This is something that we do need to understand if we are to reach and saturate our world with the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is a firehose conversation. It's going to come at you fast, it's going to come at you strong, and it's going to come at you deep. So I would encourage you, get your scuba gear on and get ready to do a deep dive as we probe really the depths of the Bible and culture and how we are to saturate our world with the good news of Jesus Christ. So listen in to my conversation with my friend, Jackson Wu. Let's listen. Welcome, everyone, to Apollos Watered. This is Travis Michael Fleming. I'm your host, and today we have a special guest with us, Jackson Wu. Jackson is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is one of his servants. He has been gifted to write and to teach and help explain difficult concepts for us that we can understand those and apply those, especially around different cultures, and help really enrich and enliven our understanding of the gospel. So we want to welcome Jackson Wu to Apollos Water. Jackson, it's a delight to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. So I, I want to tell a little bit uh, people about you before we get started, because I'm staring at one of your books right now. It is One Gospel for All Nations, A Practical Approach to Biblical Contextualization. Now, that's a that's a really kind of a, a, a mouthful for many of us. Could you just explain kind of the overall premise of the book and help us understand why we might need to really understand and delve into this kind of subject? Sure, absolutely. Um funny thing is about that book is I didn't want to write that book initially. I wanted to write the next book that happened, Reading Romans, but I just felt like it was more necessary at that point in time because I was reading a lot of literature on contextualization, and I kept noticing that people kept talking about principles of contextualization, but no one was actually saying how to do it. And it seemed like there was this big uh, clash between the Bible and culture, and no one seemed to be able to get around that that uh, tension. And so I basically wanted to write a book that was some, what I call my put up or shut up book um, and say, okay, this is how we can move forward. Practically, here is a uh, methodological approach that anybody can take. And one of the things that I try to hammer home in that book is this idea that contextualization begins uh, at interpretation. 
And that's not the same thing as like inserting our culture into the Bible. It just is to say our lens, our background, our culture does shape the things we notice and the things we don't notice, and therefore all of contextualization. Now, that, that's a pretty amazing thing that you just really brought to our attention. But I want to go back for a second because I think some people are wondering, what is he talking about right now? Because we, I've heard the term contextualization. I mean, I know what it is, but I think a lot of people might be confused on what exactly contextualization is and why it's important. Can you just go back for a second, elaborate on that, and, and really try to explain for our listeners why this principle of contextualization is important for us to understand? Well, let me say this. All theology is contextualized. And so just to let people know what's at stake here, it's everything in that regard. And I, I stake it as a risk, but contextualization affects everything. The way I have defined contextualization is, is something like this, is the process in which we interpret, apply, and communicate the biblical message in according to a cultural context. And so the Bible already comes to us contextualized. That is, God communicates, reveals himself within specific cultural context using metaphors, images, uh, concepts that make sense to people in a specific context. When all I'm trying to help us to do is realize that we all have a lens as well that shapes and influences the things we notice, the things we overlook, and help people to broaden that lens and see what else is in scripture that we might otherwise miss because of our cultural background and therefore more effectively serve people in you know the environments that we serve in so they're like almost like helping us remove our contextual or cultural blind spots if you will like we can't see things in the scripture because we're so focused on things in our own culture that we miss other details. Would that be a good way of under helping to us to understand and clarify it? Yeah, I would never say that we remove our lenses, cultural lenses, because that's impossible. But maybe we add more and more layers. Or if you want to use the car analogy with the blind spot, is that you have a bigger rear view mirror and a bigger side view mirror so that at least that those blind spots get less and less and less. Ah, that's great. That's a great way of looking at that. Because I, I think uh, for many of us, we think, well, there's just one gospel. Of course, there's one gospel. And why do we need to contextualize it? Yeah. And that's one of the things that motivated me in writing the book is I kept seeing in the Bible this talk of one gospel, but yet you read these different gospel summaries or, or should I say presentations, and you wonder, how are these related? How is there one gospel when they look so different? And part of me, Part of what I want to do is to reconcile that and then say, well, if the Bible is communicating one gospel in these diverse ways, what's the implicit method that we can pick up? So what are some of those ways that you think that we as Westerners, because you wrote your other book was reading Romans through Western eyes or Eastern eyes uh, and talking through that because our eyes and how we read it, um, really, we do miss some details about that. Why is it important then for us to really broaden our understanding and understand contextualization in our culture today? Well, for one thing, we everything we do is a contextualization, whether we realize it or not. And so we are going to contextualize. All theology, all strategy is contextual. And so I simply want us to be more wise about what we do. What I think frequently happens is that people limit contextualization to application and communication, overlooking the fact that 
they inherit a tradition, they inherit certain biases um, that are not necessarily wrong, but that lead them to emphasize one thing or overlook another. And they end up simply contextualizing a contextualization. They use merely analogies and whatnot. And what ends up happening is they end up overlooking genuine truths in scripture that people just tend to overlook or under emphasize simply because of their cultural context. So I want us to get, get the Bible back in that sense. And I think that one of the ways we do that is by broadening our lens, not by replacing it with the Eastern or Western or whatever, but the more exposure we have to different types of people, different types of cultures, the, the more objective we can at least approximate ourselves to be and ask better questions and have those different perspectives challenge one another. So, I mean, that's, that's a whole, it sounds like a seminary class in what you just explained, because that's pretty phenomenal when you really get into it. And, you know, going back to your um, metaphor there, or uh, where you said that it's just decreasing the blind spots that we have, kind of expanding the mirrors, which I love that, that picture, because as you said, and I totally agree, we really can't take off our cultural lenses, no matter how hard we try. Um, but understanding that, that kind of makes the task overwhelming for some people because they're saying, well, wait a minute, how do I know what my my issues are, like what my blind spots are? How do I discover those? Is it through encountering other cultures or reading other materials that help broaden our picture? Or how, how do we really know this these lenses that we have? Well, there's two parts to what you said. You talked about being overwhelming and so forth. Uh and I'm glad you put it that way first. And that is, uh, that's the, what I would expect someone from an individualistic Western perspective to say. And that's not meaning, that's not an insult whatsoever. It just is to say that we tend to think of contextualization as what I do. And contextualization is a community uh, activity. It's I bring certain perspectives to the table. Uh, they bring certain perspectives to the table and we process this out together. I cannot be an expert in everything theological, everything cultural, everything whatever, um, everything social, psychological, political, so forth and so on. And so uh, I, one of the things I, I wrote with this in mind is that I envision organizations, churches, uh, sitting down together and going through some of the processes and tools I give to say, hey, how can we evaluate the tools and strategies that we're doing? Because, yeah, if you think you as an individual are going to do it, it's going to be overwhelming because, I mean, you can certainly make progress. but we need to be in dialogue. So to get to your second point in your question, yes, being in dialogue with other people, genuinely seeking to understand uh, what people are, are saying who disagree with you, what they mean, uh, understanding their worldview perspectives, uh, interacting with just different people, um, go, traveling the world, living in other cultures, talking to people from other cultures. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that, these people say are right, but they're going to pose different questions. They're going to have different concerns. They're going to challenge us. Um, and what I want people to realize is that it's not an either or. Uh, three different people can be right about the text and they don't have to necessarily be contradictory. They could be um, have different priority in our interpretation in terms of this is the main idea. These are some subtle secondary ideas or this is an implication of the text. 
Now, you, you said um, you wanted to write kind of this was the book that you didn't want to write and you wanted to move through that. And, and talking about contextualization, what really brought, though, that concept out for you? I mean, were you in a specific context? Were you interacting with a certain group of people? Because I have found that it's when I interact with different cultures that I have to stop and think about my own. Is that kind of the impetus behind it, or was it schooling? I mean, what was the the reason that really brought this issue to the forefront for you that you felt, I need to really write about this? Because you obviously saw some type of deficiency um, or some type of thing that was missing that you said, hey, I really think we need to understand this. What was the impetus behind it? Well, um, I think it's a clashing of a number of contexts and situations that I was in, and I'm a I'm definitively a generalist, which, uh, as I oftentimes joke, makes me arrogant or insecure in every situation. You know, because either I feel like I know more than I do, or I don't know enough, what not. So uh, I I've always you know had a diverse range of interests, and so as I started seeing uh, different topics, I just kind of you know mold them all in my head. It kept giving me different viewpoints on topics, different questions. And, you know, I grew up in uh, the American South in Texas. I went to seminary in Boston. Uh, I spent most of my adulthood in East Asia. Um, and uh, I've always been curious to understand what truth is in contradictory and contrary viewpoints. You know, what can I learn from those people? So just kind of meshing all that together, I, I said, you know what, there's – we need to think through the lens in which we're looking at things and the broader lens, the more experience that we have, the more diverse peoples we're friends with, uh, the richer our insights and the texts are going to be. But the more and more we surround ourselves with people just like us and we rarely leave our environment, um, uh, don't have diverse friends, so forth and so on, uh, it's, it's going to make us more wary, actually, of doing healthy contextualization. So, so basically, if I get your what you're saying is, is that we need the diversity of God's people to help really uh, help us see God better. Absolutely. And again, it doesn't mean that everybody is right just because they have different opinions, but it, it does raise better questions. As one scholar put it, a mono or a, a, a multicultural uh, perspective is is more objective than a monocultural perspective because you can at least have these different viewpoints challenge one another and maybe improve your questions. Cause part of it may not be that so much that we're wrong, but we're asking the wrong question. And then we're missing so much that's in the text. Um, uh, an excellent, just kind of contemporary example that's made a lot of press lately is uh, reading wild black by Esau Macaulay. Um, uh, I was curious, you know, where he says there are certain things that African-American readers will see when they read the text and, and he had all kinds of insights that I would not have picked up on since I'm not an African-American. You know, that's that's fascinating. I, I remember hearing a similar story um, once, and I'm, it may have even been in your book. Um, but there was a story that was told once of a Bible college professor who went through the parable of the prodigal or the two sons. And he had them go through the whole, he read through the entire thing and then asked the class to repeat back the details that they 
you know, all to recall the details of the story. And it's interesting, out of 100 students, only two students recalled the fact that there had been a famine in the land. And the reason that they recalled it is because they had both been through famines and no one else in the class had. So it's kind of to illustrate your point is to say that when we have other people that have a different experiences, they see a lot more about things that are in the text that we have a tendency to miss just because it's not part of our our kind of cultural background. Would that be about right? I mean, that's what seems like you're illustrating. In principle, people get what I'm saying by virtue of the fact that when they are 30 or 40 or 50, they see things in the text that they seemingly never saw before. They get new insights. They have more mature interpretations that compared to when they were 15 or 20. And history is just history. Different historical periods are, di- are different contexts, just as much as cultural contexts are. So what people recognize is happening chronologically throughout their lifespan is all I'm talking about when we look at uh, looking at the Bible from different cultural perspectives. Now, there, again, what I believed at when I was 25 versus what I believed at 35 or whatnot don't necessarily have to be contradictory, but they could be more robust, richer, uh, or refocused. And, and deeper. It takes you really a deeper in understanding of it rather than questioning it. I mean, there are some things that we do need to question, obviously, but it should take us deeper in our understanding and appreciation of the gospel. We shouldn't yeah. be threatened by anything like that. And I think this, it just requires a lot of humility and a generous spirit to say, all right, I don't understand that. I want to figure out what's the truth in that. What's the good in that? That doesn't mean that we embrace everything wholesale, but at least we have a generous spirit because our tendency is that if something is different, we label as bad. And I think that we have to hold that tendency in check if we really want to have a humble reading of the text and and do meaningful contextualization. That's amazing. That's actually an awesome point. Um, You know, as you were sharing, it made me think of the fact that when I first saw my wife, I actually thought she was bad. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to comment on that. I was kind of, I had an opinion of her because I grew up in the Midwest and she grew up in South Florida. And so kind of our concepts of just how you dress or, you know, jewelry you might wear were very, very different. And then I realized that I totally misjudged her. And I, I think that's kind of the same thing. Sometimes we see some things in other cultures that we misjudge, but when we get closer, we find that there's a lot more to it than we really ever imagined. And there's a greater appreciation for it. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about you and is uh, your understanding of what is often called honor and shame worldview. Um, and I, I know many of our listeners may be unfamiliar with those terms, but can you just give a brief explanation on what honor and shame is and why it is important for us to understand today? Sure. Most people I talk to uh, when they think of honor and shame, what they what comes to mind is true, but it's a partial truth. Um, people, for uh, for example, honor and shame are, are topics talked about across different academic disciplines. So, in psychology, Brene Brown has made this topic of shame, um, you know, very very well known, and it's and it's oftentimes seen as merely a bad is only I should say a bad thing, but uh, there's also shame in a moral sense, like in Confucian, uh, Chinese cultures, um, where shame, you, you need to have a sense of shame to make good moral decisions. And, and people in the West get this when we talk about, you don't want to be shameless. Uh, 
Um, honor. Sometimes people think of either medieval knights or worse, they, they think actually of honor killings. But there's also, you know, having a sense of honor, uh, having an honor code, uh, living honorably. So at broad strokes, honor and shame are communal concepts, collective concepts that speak to one's perceived value of worth within some kind of community. That's very, very, very broad strokes. Um, sometimes honor and shame is contrasted with other culture types like guilt, innocence, fear, and power. But these are super broad constructs and no culture is completely one or the other. They're just uh, somewhat helpful uh, categories for conversation's sake. Mm. Now, I've, I've, as you mentioned, and I, I'm not obviously as, as versed in this as you are, but I've looked at it or tried to have people illustrate it to me as they're kind of the operating systems of that culture. I think of computer programs. I think if people have Mac or if they have Windows, it seems like that's kind of the operating system that some cultures have, honor, shame. But as you said, it's not a, a hard and fast line. Other cultures I've heard, especially more within an African context or fear and power cultures. Um, I also think America is an innocence guilt culture. And we're also very, as you said, before individualistic um and you mentioned in some of those other cultures they're more of a collective so rather than think as individuals they think as a unit what is what are some of the benefits of thinking along that way because honestly my first reaction is is i i think of the i go negative um and maybe that's my own cultural experiences where i think wow, I don't want to have this group think go wrong and then I'm brought down with them. Um, but that there are some true benefits to it that I think can act as a corrective to some of our individualistic tendencies. Do you want to, can you elaborate yeah. on that? Or yeah. And the way you describe it is an accurate caricature. What I mean is you're describing the typical way people think of honor, shame culture. Um, the truth is all cultures um, are influenced by honor and shame. The vocabulary and the rules merely differ, um, for good or bad. So when you have, you know, uh, you know, patriotism and, and national unity, team unity and sports, you know, being a, a fan of a sports team, um, uh, you can also have a cancel culture these days. Um, so, I mean, they are manifest in the West for sure. Um, See, it, it, it seems like, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's just simply different categories. Whereas in some cultures, the lines might be drawn more on family lines. It seems more in our culture, they're ideological, sports, whatever the issue that we unite to uh, seems to be where those lines are drawn. Would that be a correct assessment? Yes. Uh, yes. That, that's fantastic. Yeah. And rather than think of group thing, uh, think in terms of identity, whereas in the West, People tend to think of identity as how I am different or distinct from others. Uh, in Eastern thought, at least, and, and elsewhere, the idea is I am how I am like other people, how I'm similar to other people. Um, and so based on language, heritage, ancestry, tradition, so forth and so on. And the truth is that human identity is a, is a compilation of both, how we're the same and how we're different. And so none of us are truly individuals that are not influenced by shaped by or motivated by other people. And so, uh, the, 
it's more of a matter of rather than saying, which one do I choose? It's more of being aware of their influence and maybe not uh, suppressing the work, you know, the best parts of, of them. So individuality is great. Um, individualism uh, is where you start running into trouble, where you prioritize the individual over anyone else. Uh, and that's where you start running some problems as a, as a Christian, where you, uh, uh, it turns into say selfishness and lack of love for others. But I mean, the church understanding ourselves as a body is inherently, uh, honor, shame, collective oriented. Which means that we, and that kind of flies in the face of some of our modern notions of I can have Jesus, but not the church. Because you hear some people saying, well, I want Jesus, but I don't like his church. But really, Jesus doesn't give that option. It seems he puts us into a collective for our benefit to work out our salvation with fear and trembling with other people that are sinners just like we are. Uh, I like to look at it as a spiritual hospital or triage. It's not filled with perfect people. We're all trying to get to the great physician um, with all of our problems and all of our issues. And I, I think with uh, COVID, we've seen just the importance now of and the necessity of real fellowship with other believers. So are you seeing then this concept, like you said, it's this honor shame element is in our, con is in our culture right now. Um, and it's affected so many different things with the gospel. How, what are some things that we can draw from that help us grow in our understanding of the depth of the gospel with honor and shame? Ooh, big question. I will, uh, try to just highlight a few things here. Um, for one thing, I think that honor and shame helps us get the church back, uh, in a individualistic, our understanding of the gospel, it's about God and me and how I get individual salvation lift forever, so forth and so on. Well, um, rather we understand that if Christ is setting is establishing his kingdom and making a new creation, I belong to a new people. I, as my fundamental identity has shifted from one group of people to another sense of a group of people. My allegiance, my loyalties, my loves, my family has fundamentally changed. If it's merely, uh, if the gospel is merely about a bunch of individuals, uh, functionally what has happened is that the church becomes just something extra, this thing that would be really good and beneficial, but not really essential to what God is doing. It's just more of kind of this, tag that you put on this group of people rather than this fundamental shift of, of belonging and identity. So that's, that's a, a tremendous one. Obviously there's other dynamics in terms of how we understand sin. You know, sin is not merely law breaking. Um, that's a fine metaphor, but it's fun at its heart, dishonoring God. And the goal of life is to bring glory to God, not merely obey some rules so that uh, I can avoid you know, pain or whatnot. So it's much deeper than we really realized. And when we see that our understanding of God and the gospel comes out in a greater way. Oh, absolutely. And so you, I don't think it's so much uh, an understanding perspective undoes everything, but it helps it become more robust and significant to the heart. So for example, rather than being about my personal belief system, um, we understand the value of allegiance and loyalty and faithfulness, uh, to to God and to his people and and uh where I belong and so forth, how I define insiders and outsiders, so forth and so on. And so it has various implications for 
conduct and, um, and, and just at a heart level. Mm. So as we're talking through this subject, I kind of go, I want to go back to your book for a moment, One Gospel for All Nations. So then this book would really help us understand just what the gospel is and how it's working through the church and through different individuals and different ethnicities and cultures. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I uh, hope that people get from, say, the Reading Romans book, one of the applications is that we realize how much Romans does talk about collective identity, group identity. And that, that was actually very much at the core of what Paul is trying to combat and address. And if we miss that, um, we lose tons of, of applications, potential applications for our day. If we see Romans merely as this kind of gospel tract, uh, Romans road type things, then it it remains at a privatized level. And then we are not aware of perhaps subtle biases, pressures, and group dynamics that are shaping us. We like to say we're all individuals, but we're all shaped by the community around us with subtle prejudices and, and ambitions and boasts. And Paul gets to those things in Romans. So is this book then uh, a book that's written for everybody or who, who are the people that should be reading, uh, you know, your book on Romans? Uh, it's meant, it was written for people who wanted to have, who were really thoughtful and engaging in their reading of the, of the text. Um, in other words, if you're looking for something that's a mere like coffee table read or whatnot, as they're probably not going to be interested in the book, uh, not reading it all the way through, but you don't have to be an academic for sure. I definitely wrote it not for academics, but somebody who say, I want to really want to give thoughtful consideration to what the book says and question maybe some conventional ways of thinking. Now, I, I think your book is, is vitally important for the future of the church because I maintain that God has brought the nations to us, uh, not only for us to reach the nations, but as my friend Daniel Yang says, that the, the nations actually might reach us. But I find that as we are an increasingly multi-ethnic and multicultural society, that our churches will be that way. Um, and we can't expect people just to adapt to one way of doing things, because there's really just not one way to do things properly. How can Romans help us to understand how we as a church are to go about this understanding of living out the truths of the gospel? Oh my, there's so many things I could touch on, but one of the big things that Paul addresses specifically in Romans 14 and 15 is an application of what he does previously in the book. That is, um, Paul challenges the social boundary lines that the church had set between, uh, you know, insiders, outsiders, uh, uh, Jew, Gentile, the culturally, you know, Greek, barbarian, so forth and so on, what you could eat, what you could not eat. There are all these lines. And, and Paul saying, hey, no, it's about, do you have allegiance to Christ or do you not? Do you belong to the family of God or do you not? It, it doesn't make the, these, these different questions or distinctions not matter, but uh, just like the Paul's Jewish uh, interlocutor or opponent, you know, literary opponent was saying, "Hey, you need to be circumcised. You need to become a Jew in order to become one of God's people." He, Paul, uh, 
Paul wants us to think, what are the boundary lines that we're drawing that are not uh, true and faithful? So to put it, you know, by analogy, the same way that the ancient Jews would try to keep Gentiles out uh, by making them convert to, to, you know, or belong to Israel. We sometimes subtly do that in cultural forums by saying, well, God's really about our group. And if you really want to be in the family, you need to believe this or do that. Well, that seems kind of to fly in the face of some of the early, uh, and I say early in the 1970s, there was the philosophy that was maintained of the homogeneous unit principle, where you had, you aim at one ethnic group of people, and then that church will grow around that ethnic group of people. But it seems that God has something much bigger than just one ethnic group of people, that it's all of these different cultures coming together that really show the reality of the glory of God. And without those cultures there, then we're really missing something. Would you agree with that? Or would you see that there's something different or perhaps that we're missing? Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, there's the thing is with all things, there's truth and not truth all blend in. And so, yes, people do naturally tend to, uh, homogeneous principle has some truth that people do tend to attract people of of similar, similar patterns and thinkings whatnot. But when diverse groups uh, inter, intermingle, get to know each other, they find that there's a lot more commonality than they thought. A lot more. And so you get diversity in that way. Uh, you don't have to simply isolate. I'm going for that group or going for that or this group or that group. Um, there's a lot more commonality across human groups than we sometimes recognize. And the gospel touches on those things. Which is also helpful, I think, to remove some of the barriers as we do interact with people of different ethnic backgrounds than our own. Whether it's if we're in Africa or we're in Asia or if we're in you know South America or Texas or wherever we might be in the United States, I think as you've really hit the kind of the nail on the head by saying that we have universal things across the board. We want good health. We want safety. We want security. We want family. We want purpose. We want direction. We want meaning. And that, I think, helps us to have a dialogue because oftentimes I think we see the differences and that causes us to stay away. But when we focus on the similarities, that helps draw us closer. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And uh, and we can when we become curious about other people's differences and their those differences are going to shape us and and knit us together. Um, so, uh, and the gospel helps us to do that because all of a sudden these various social boundaries or ideologies don't scare us because the gospel uh, is is more fundamental to who we are. Mm, mm. Now, going back for a second, you mentioned that you were in East Asia for a period of time. Now, talking about contextualization, being someone, as you said, you grew up in Texas and you'd been in Boston for some schooling and then found yourself in East Asia. What were some of these contextualization principles? Can you give us an example of what one looked like? Because we need that, just a good way to understand this. I think that we, when we hear it academically, we hear the explanation of it, it and it can be a little bit far away. How do we bring this really close and tangible? Because honestly, we're going to be encountering people from East Asia or from other cultures. Help us to put on a cultural lens and increase our, our sight that we can be able to apply some of these truths and not just have it for knowledge's sake. 
Well, for example, one of the things that really grabbed my attention early on was realizing that uh, Chinese translated the word sin as crime. And so they constantly said, well, I'm not a criminal. And so you, you, the conversation stopped oftentimes there. And so I started just thinking through uh, biblical images that s- describe sin in terms of honor and shame and so forth. And a very simple word picture I sometimes gave was sin is like publicly spitting in your father's face. And they immediately got that. Obviously physical recoil, like, oh, wow. And then we could move on in the discussion. Um, more broadly, uh, it affected my, uh, the things I talked about, uh, because the average Chinese person did not wake up in the morning wondering, how will the Holy God accept me? That was just a non-issue. And so, uh, but that's oftentimes what a typical Western presentation begins with because there's assumed Christian worldview and concerns. Now, less and less that's the case nowadays in the West. So, but I would talk about, for example, uh, relationships. I'll talk about face. Let me me take a step back for a second. You can get honor and shame in two ways. It could be ascribed to you based on your relationships, your, your birth, so forth and so on, or it can be achieved, you know, so what you do, you fail, you succeed, so forth. And I just started focusing on people's desire for face, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we want acceptance, we want approval. Uh, these are not inherently bad things, but I'd say basically focus on, well, who do you know? Who do you not know? Uh, what have you done? What have you not done? Just getting to know them questions and highlighting these aspects is for belonging and face. And then uh, turn it to Jesus and who he was, who he knew, things he did, uh, how he had perfect face. And and face is just kind of, a, a at least in Chinese, just a, a broad marker for honor, shame issues. Uh, and then if they want a true face, um, or true honor before God, then, uh, you know, this is what you, you, you need to do. So, I mean, that's just uh, a few points to your conversation, but it's a matter of getting inside the mindset of what's important from an honor shame perspective and shifting conversations, uh, focuses and, uh, shifting, uh, way I explain terms, so forth and so on. Well, that's really helpful. I, I think, especially in the churches, it becomes, more multi-ethnic in America. And I think that really is the future of the church in America is, is being multi-ethnic because we've seen just the nations come all around us. And I think these concepts really help deepen our understanding of who Jesus is, the gospel is, what the gospel is, and how we are to live as Christians in the middle of this world. So, as uh, we're kind of wrapping up today, what are what are ways that what we what are some of the things that we can do to help educate ourselves so that we might deepen in our understanding of how deep and wide the gospel is, and how we might be able to share it with other people who are different and from different ethnic backgrounds than we are? Because you've really brought out a lot of different concepts on a lot of different pieces. And I know that sometimes we want to make it really succinct, and it's not always that way. It's sometimes rather big. How can we, though, take some of these things and really use it to live out the truth of the gospel and share our witness with other people? Well, first off, I would say get to know diverse people. And I'm not talking about if you're from Mississippi, you know, you get to know someone from Alabama. You know, get to know people with who have genuine 
uh, disagreements or backgrounds from you. Seek them out. Truly seek to befriend them. Uh, have a humble position because you're not going to learn anything if you don't actually aren't around a lot of people who have very different backgrounds from you. Much of what I have written comes not out of theoretical theoretical speculation, but it comes out of a lot of experience in me wrestling with the experiences and the conversations I've had. Um, so, uh, you know, when you talk about academic, theoretical, whatnot, this is not one of those books. And I don't tend to be a type of writer where I just go, this sounds like a good idea. Now let's go try it. It's more of a, this is what I've been doing. This is what I'm seeing. Um, and here's the results and the fruit of it. Uh, so that would be one of the main things I would say, get to genuinely get to know, invite people into your house, uh, invest parts of your life in places and with people that you don't tend to agree with, or you don't tend to understand as well, uh, who are different than you. Um, second of all, of course, there's just reading. I mean, it, reading does help because it does introduce questions so that as you go through your experience, you can read certain books and questions are on your mind. Uh, a friend of mine, Jason George's uh, honorshame.com is is a good place to start. My I have a website, jacksonwu.org. Uh, of course, there's a lot of, go to, go to Amazon or wherever you want and, and type in honor and shame and there's a whole lot of books that'll pop up. Hmm. Awesome. Well, that's, I mean, basically you already answered my question. I said, well, how can people learn more about what you're doing and follow along? I know you blog. Uh, I know you're pretty active. I mean, people can order your books. Uh, but what are some of the other resources? I mean, honorshame.com is a, is a great one with Jason George's. I know he's got a book as well, Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures. I mean, uh, just to finish off today, because I know that time is, is, is limited, but it's been amazing, amazingly insightful conversation. I've learned a ton and I hope that everybody has too, but what's one concluding thought that we can just use as a, as a takeaway for today, as uh, we get ready to leave. Hmm. Um, I'm going to cheat and say two, and that is just because I can't decide between the two explore where in your own life honor and shame has affected who you are and affects who you are and your ambitions. That'd be one thing I would urge people to do. But the other is simply uh, have humility and learning about others and the word. Uh, and you can't go wrong if you uh, genuinely do that. Seek to know the truth, even from people who maybe say 99% of things are wrong. <laughs> Where's the truth in what they are saying? Mm, that's a good thought. Well, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been really enlightening and insightful, and I hope and pray that all those who are able to listen to this podcast might be able to go out and get one of your books, um, also follow you online and learn more about this so that we can all educate ourselves that the kingdom of God might continue to expand, God's name might receive glory, and we might increase in joy. Thank you again, Jackson. For coming on today. God bless you and all your work, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That was Jackson Wu. I told you it was going to be a deep dive, and I trust that you were stretched because of it. I know that there are were many different things that we talked about that you probably want to go back and listen to again, and I would encourage you to do that. Follow him online. He blogs at Pathios, or go to Amazon, order his book. Just put in Jackson Wu, and his books will come up. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I would be highly honored if you would share this with other people. Also, please feel free to rate us online, review this podcast, share it with other people, go to our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, and let us know what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy. Help us to help you so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, this is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.